0: issues one man searches for intelligent conversation from Dedham, Massachusetts the birthplace of modern democracy this is you don't have to yell with your host Dan Sally 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 Sally
1: welcome to YDHTY the podcast for the exhausted majority who like their politics in colors other than red and blue if you are new here welcome and if you like what you hear today share it with one friend you think might like it too. This podcast grows by word of mouth. Now, two weeks ago, as I was getting ready to leave on vacation, I recorded the intro to last week's episode where I made a crack about hoping the world didn't fall apart while I was gone. My timing could not have been any worse. Now, I've invited my man, Ben Studebaker, who longtime listeners will know, to come on and offer his take on the events unfolding in Ukraine next week, so be sure to tune into that. Now as I record this intro, we're at an odd time of political unity in response to Russia's invasion and this week's guest has made it his mission to get to the root of the normal baseline level of discord we've grown accustomed to in modern day America. Seth David Radwell left a long and successful career as an executive in the consumer goods industry when he began to see business leaders become fearful of taking stances on issues of politics and public policy, and he made it his mission to understand the root of the divisions in our society. Now, many Americans long for a return to the days of the founding fathers when Partisan rancor was set aside, and elected officials engaged in high-minded debates about policy and the future of the republic, and according to Seth's research, none of that actually happened. It was never like that. Now, Seth traces the fault lines in American politics all the way back to the Age of Enlightenment, an era starting in the 1600s when many of the ideas that America was founded on were formed. His book, American Schism, documents how competing versions of the Enlightenment vied for dominance throughout American history, and how they can explain some of the divisions in American politics today. Seth joined me to discuss his book and how the current state of political discourse in America fits into a much longer history of balancing the power of the elite establishment against that of the governed. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it. I will be back at the end with my final thoughts. So, you were on Tucker Carlson. Yes. Right? God, what was that like? What was that experience like?
0: It was surreal in many ways. Many of, of my friends and colleagues advised me not to go, but. The whole point of the effort in the book is to talk to be willing to talk to people of different perspectives. So I thought it was important yeah. to do it. And of course he has a huge following, but what what was fascinating was the difference between his on-air persona and the person that he is off-air, which is very different. Really?
1: So yes. what's he like off what's what's the difference? What's he like off-air?
0: Well, off-air he's 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 very thoughtful uh-huh. and very considerate and not not what i, I would say reactionary uh, it's just a different i mean it's a, it's a different experience
1: yeah do you know it's funny so in in my past life i would probably call myself maybe more of like a bill weld republican or william f buckley you know a northeast yeah. northeast conservative which is right. now Pretty much a democrat but but it's funny i remember tucker carlson from back in like the national review bow tie wearing days his persona then was far more like affable i think than it is on tv now and it may go into you know it may may just feed into like what's happened to politics and i know you when and this actually is a good dovetail into your book itself american schism which really outlines the the history of it and i'm very interested in giving the listener, an overview of that, because I really found your starting point really fascinating. You know, Before we get into that, though, what prompted you to write the book in the first place?
0: Sure. So I, I think as we d- discussed, and some of your listeners may know, my whole career has been in business. I'm, I've been known as an expert in marketing. I've spoken a lot about direct marketing. I've been the president and CEO of many consumer brands like Proactive. And you know, What happened was I took a three year hiatus from my business career to work on this project that led to American Schism. And uh, people asked me, was there a cocktail party moment when I knew I had to do this? And there really wasn't, it was a gradual process. Mm -hmm. I would say it was the perfect storm of two things. I noticed starting a couple of years ago that in my view, our political discourse had completely collapsed to the point where it, it wasn't clear that we were going to be able to to sustain a democratic form of public problem solving in in, in the in the public arena. So that was one thing that was happening. but I, I think the more important thing for me was, you know, Dan, over the course of my career in business, I've been fortunate to build a great network of very smart people, professionals. What I noticed at events over the last couple of years is that more and more, private sector leaders were putting their head in the sand. They didn't want to get involved in political issues for fear of bringing on the wrath of some group, you know, or for fear of getting canceled, or or they didn't see any upside in engaging on these issues. So to me, the perfect storm was, well, if in the public sector, our discourse has collapsed, and if the private sector leaders won't step in, how are we going to hand a democratic republic to our kids? Who's going to advocate for democratic norms? And it seemed like quite an urgent problem. And that's when I went on this investigative journey, which led to the book.
1: I am such a fan of that. I think you know, one of the things I've seen, not so much at the corporate leadership side, but certainly let's call it rank and file, is very often you find people who are afraid to express themselves politically for what it might mean for their career. Where yes, I, I think absolutely. even ten years down the line wasn't the case. I, I, I'm curious on the on on the side of the on the side of business leaders and executives out there. Is there one or are there a couple of issues that you saw people avoiding that you just found odd?
0: Well, so, so there's always been the issue in in consumer advertising, which you know we uh, the brands that I ran had large advertising budgets. So there was always an issue of like. Of where to air commercials and when to pull an ad and not be on a station if something's so there was always a little bit of that but but I, uh, this was a much broader trend of a real reluctance to weigh in even when issues would affect the workplace and I, I you know I, I think that was is, was really unfortunate because to me the the only solution is that private sector leaders have to get involved in this you know one of the the major themes of the book is that, and you mentioned this before when we were talking about the media model. The media model is such that it incentivizes the extremes. Mm. That's how the media model works today. it incentivizes what is either entertaining or gets clickbait or or gets gets attention. And to get attention amongst all the clutter, you have to be outrageous. So if that's the, the media model, that tends to exaggerate what, you know, extreme voices on the left and right both of which I think are destructive. But what my research shows is that 70% of Americans are part of the exhausted majority Mm -hmm. and don't actually believe that the extremes represent their views. And this is, of course, in the book American Schism. A lot of of, uh, that exhausted majority are exhausted because they don't know where to turn. And that's what leads to apathy. And that's, I think, especially true amongst corporate leaders. And, you know, what I've been doing since the book came out is been speaking a lot to private sector leaders about the imperative to get involved.
1: One of the things I found most interesting about your book is we tend to view what's going on now as an anomaly. So we tend to think of these halcyon days when high-minded it's, people like Thomas Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton somberly right. debated the fate of our Republic but it really wasn't the case at all from, from at what all. I've, yeah and and I want to get to that but I want to go even a little further back because you actually start off with the transformation that took place in Europe during the age of the Enlightenment and for the listener can you explain what happened there
0: Yes, and it's especially important, and I I very much concentrated on the Enlightenment because I believe it's the foundation for modern society. And so so the Enlightenment's got a very bad rap over the last 50 years. But let me explain to the listener who doesn't know. The Enlightenment was, was a period of time in the 17th and 18th century when there was a huge evolution, a revolution maybe, in how people thought. So the focus of thinking and activity prior to the Enlightenment was mostly about faith, religion, the structure of society, which was dominated in in Europe at least, by monarchies and and people in the clergy and most people were quite poor. Mm -hmm. And in the Enlightenment, there was an explosion of a new type of thinking based on two God-given gifts that we have as humans. One is the power of empirical observation Mm -hmm. and the other is the power of reason. Mm-hmm. And t- tons of thinkers in almost every field, starting with Isaac Newton, uh, used those powers to describe what the world was and how humans can create a better situation for themselves. You know, the, 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 there's one of the great Enlightenment texts is Diderot's Encyclopedia, which talks about, for average people who could read practical things in life about how to improve their life, how to fix. At the time, the construct for it in the Enlightenment was the social contract. And some of your listeners may have read some of the famous social contract theorists like Hobbes and Rousseau and Locke. But but this is why this is important. It was only because of the work in the social contract, which asked the question, why do people get together to form a society and what's involved? That is, led to our country. <laughs> I mean, the Declaration of Independence is, a, is an Enlightenment document, complete completely I- I- in the Enlightenment sense of providing a set of empirical observations and reasoning that states an, a goal. So in other words, it says basically, we believe that there are, in fact, as the social contract thinker said, inalienable rights. That, In other words, when you enter a society as t- t- to form a civilized world, you have to give up certain rights to the state. You can't You can't rob, you can't steal, you can't steal someone's land, et cetera. But as part, so you give up certain rights as being a free person, which by the way, many people forget today. When we talk about liberty, everyone thinks that they have unlimited rights. You don't, yeah. but there are certain rights that the social contract thinkers postulated. There are certain rights which cannot be taken away, that are inalienable or unalienable. Both terms are used. And that is the foundation for modern society. So, to, to, to in, in short, to me, the Enlightenment is the starting point because the Enlightenment is the foundation for modernism in all its respects. And and let me just close this, this this question by by sharing a couple of data points. The Enlightenment, as as Steven Pinker has written, is the greatest story seldom told, because if you look along any. Objective dimensions, and I'll I'll give you three. Life expectancy, poverty, and child mortality. 200 years ago, when the enlightenment was just starting, life expectancy was 30 years across the planet. Now it's over 70 years. 200 years ago, one in five children did not survive till age five. Today, child mortality, of course, is is a tiny fraction of that. And 200 years ago, Four-fifths of the global population lived in extreme poverty. And today, about one-fifth of the world's population lives in that level of poverty. My point being, amongst almost any measure of prosperity, the Enlightenment has provided the foundation for tremendous human prosperity. We've had more human prosperity because of the Enlightenment in the last 200 years than in the prior 2000. So that's why the book starts there. And we wouldn't have a country without the Enlightenment.
1: No Enlightenment, no democracy, effectively.
0: No, I mean, democracy is but a blip on the radar screen. But for thousands of years, society was driven by birth, might, and faith.
1: Yeah. Those were
0: the dimensions that that, that structured society. So yeah. if you were, if you had a noble birth for many centuries, that was great. If you were had faith that would allow you to have a leadership role, that was great. And otherwise you had to duke it out.
1: Yeah, I thought one of the, one of the and again, I don't want to spend too much time pre-enlightenment, but one of the most interesting things I, I kind of, that clicked with me in your book was the fact that the church really served as this stabilizing force in a way, or of, of a way to facilitate the negotiations between those in power and the lay people,
0: yes, uh, correct.
1: which was really interesting to me. One question I'm going to ask, and this is really more to justify a hunch that may come up later in the episode. Do you have any idea what, prompted the start of the Enlightenment? Why did the Enlightenment yeah. start at that specific point?
0: Great question. So there were precursors to the Enlightenment in a couple of movements. And, you know, even though it's it's attributed to the 17th and 18th century, I think it started a little bit earlier with two, two great philosophers, Rene Descartes and mm-hmm. Spinoza, Baruch Spinoza. Yeah. And they're, and I don't wanna to get too, philosophical. I mean, I'm not a philosophy professor, first of all. Yeah. I'm a big reader of philosophy. But I think what those thinkers uh, did was pave the way for what today would be called rationalism or reason. Mm. Okay. Uh, the, how how important reason is in the human experience. And one of the things that distinguishes us from other species, okay? So so that the notion of reason being fundamental. And I guess the other force that was kind of pre-Enlightenment but that became part of the enlightenment was empirical empiricism that mm-hmm. by observing the universe we could and using our reason we could get to an objective truth that there was okay. there were truths to the universe which is why newton is so important because he like he described the physical universe in terms of physics yeah. so i think those were some of the precursors in the early 17th century what ha- what's happened dan since in the last 50 60 70 years because of what's now Considered the postmodern lens, the Enlightenment to a large degree has been discounted. People think, okay, the Enlightenment was a bunch of white European males. So, you know, they, how could, how did they really affect a, what that narrative of them revolutionizing the world is really is really not true, and you know, there, there's certainly a criticisms that the Enlightenment was only the the writers that contributors to the Enlightenment often were of one perspective, but. Just because they they happen to have been white European males doesn't mean what they wrote wasn't profound. Mm -hmm. They were talking about humanity overall and especially the radical Enlighteners. So in the book, I make this distinction between the moderate and the radical, which turns out to be very important. But the radical Enlighteners were very interested in kind of what I would call the global uh, civilized world, what was happening in Asia, in Africa, in, in in the Americas. So it wasn't intended to just to just be a European platform, mm-hmm. and I think the postmodern critique is quite unfair, and that's again another reason why I focus on the Enlightenment in the book.
1: Yeah, and you know, you you, you kind of alluded to it just a moment ago. So there there are sort of three forces at play here, and right. you mentioned one of them. I'm going to start with the, with two, and then go to the third. So you have the radical Enlightenment, but you also have a, the moderate Enlightenment. And can you describe right. those for the for the listener?
0: Right, well, I'd love to. And it goes, at the start of our talk, you said people assume that you know, Thomas Jefferson and, and Alexander Hamilton got along. Not at all. Our families yeah. were not monolithic. On the contrary, in Europe and in America at that time, there was a war, two schools of thought that were contending for prominence. So mm-hmm. on many aspects of Enlightenment thinking, like reason, empirical analysis, Enlighteners agreed. But on political philosophy, there was a huge divergence. And one way to think about it is that let the mo- the moderates who are, by the way, many of the enlighteners that people have read about a little bit, like I mentioned before, Locke, Rousseau, Hobbes, Montesquieu. Yeah. In the United States, it was John Adams and Alexander Hamilton, along, among many others. There, so it, as I described before, in the social contract, there needs to be a role played to make sure inalienable rights are not violated and to control who's ever leading, whether it's a monarch or king, or, that, that they don't infringe on the rights of the people. Now, for the moderates, the, mm. who do you think the moderates thought were the right people to set up the governing structure and govern? Well, for the moderates, it was themselves. <laughs> the, <laughs> yeah. moderates thought, the moderates thought that that people who had the responsibility and skills to govern were the enlightened, the educated, which meant their prescription for society, was what was called then an aristocratic republic. So mm-hmm. aristocrats get together, like the constitutional monarchy in England, and and f- form an agreement with the monarch that the monarch can't screw the people. That there has yeah. to be some balance of power. And the, and the aristocrats play that role. Now, so the first major difference in philosophy that separates the radicals And it really started with the French radicals like Condorcet and Diderot and Briseau people, many names that your your listeners probably are not familiar with. But it was the radicals that said and discussed and, and argued vehemently that the only, the sole form of legitimate government in a social contract is in fact a representative democracy, a government of the people, by the people. And in the U.S., that was followed by schools of our founders who were really enamored with this notion of representative democracy and decentralized government. People like Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin, and Thomas Paine are the three I talk about in the book. But they disagreed enormously. Now, there was one other key difference beside the actual form of government itself that's quite important. The radicals had documented for centuries how in Europe, the monarchy and the church had a tacit collusion to keep the people in place. Mm -hmm. So it was the radicals that came up with the formula of what today is called separation of church and state. They believed that that civic affairs needed to be separate from religious affairs. They were were two different realms. And the moderates very much, by the way, sanctioned the role of religion in the state. So so the, the moderates very much embraced the role of the church, whereas the radicals, Shoot it, yeah. but that those two differences were huge and led to, if essentially in the U.S., two contending visions, two disagreeing visions on what the republic should be in the first place. The American schism is what happened in the founding that tore these two groups apart and in contention.
1: And it's funny too, because you know, in, in that respect, what we have is a, a compromised government effectively. We have a radical enlightenment in the form of a House of Representatives. We have a moderate enlightenment in the form of what was then a, an appointed Senate. And, 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 or as George Washington called it, the cooling saucer, which is effectively right. where the ideas are, are come up from the hoi polloi and eventually make their
0: way into the that's elite. Right. That's right, um, exactly, You're exa- that's exactly right. There was a, a huge pendulum shift from a radical mindset in mm-hmm. 1776 to a much more moderate view that led to the Constitution, and it was a set of compromises. And to your point, in 1776 was an age of idealism. We were declaring independence from Britain. It was this huge free, free idealistic period. But fast forward to 1784, the war's over, and now we have these huge problems on the ground. Like, how are we gonna pay for the war? How are we gonna get 13 very different colonies to work together and have a foreign policy, because of course we needed allies at that point. So there were pragmatic problems that needed practical solutions. And it was the moderates, it turns out, like people like Alexander Hamilton and John Adams, who actually were able to design the solution. So, So yes, there was a drift towards the moderate school by time the constitution was written, and there were, all, were also other like, kind of interesting historical facts. Like, uh, m- Most of the radicals, by the way, weren't in the room. Jefferson was off being ambassador to France. He was writing his fun. notes furiously to Madison. Benjamin Franklin was old and had gout and was not as vigorous as he was in his earlier uh, life. And Thomas Paine wasn't in the room. So, so, yeah. the, so the framers were much more moderate. But one of the brilliant aspects of what's called the Federalist Papers the Federalist Papers were were the marketing document that Hamilton and Madison worked on to get the Constitution ratified. It was a set of, of papers that they put out anonymously, interestingly enough. One of the reasons the Federalist Papers has survived as one of the greatest political documents ever written is because what the Federalist Papers really do in, to, to, to a large degree is try to reconcile and compromise between this notion of the radical and moderate prescriptions. Hamilton especially, and Madison, they talk about how the Constitution has a combination, to your point, of both both methods. We have a House, which is democratically represented of the people, but there's also a Senate, which is really an aristocratic republic. And there's a president. So it is, it is a compromise combination.
1: It's, it's so funny to hear you say this too. And you and the listener can probably hear, my cat will not stop meowing right outside my door. So we're gonna hear this. We may hear the dog in a bit. I usually do the the noise disclaimer at the top of the episode, but we're here now. Getting back to my original point before I was distracted by my cat, you know, it's funny the way, you, the way you position this, because if you were to ask me just cold, like, who do you think was were the moderates? Who do you think were the radicals? Well, I would have flipped that on his head and yes. i would have i would have considered you know somebody like thomas jefferson to be more in the moderate camp just given i mean given the fact he was a slaveholder first and okay. foremost but
0: well so and, and that by the way is the, the, again discussed in the book the huge contradiction of the entire revolution mm-hmm. was slavery of course because mm-hmm. you know all men are created equal and I, <laughs> And, and look what was going on on the ground. So, so that is in fact, the, the, contra- the this, this great contradiction that ends up being the pain point for our history and still is in my view, but, but in any case, no, the, 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 from a philosophical perspective, Jefferson was very much into decentralized government. He wanted, he, did, he was very distrustful of central government. He believed in, in an egalitarian uh, society where everyone had a voice Ha- As a contrast, Hamilton, who was a genius, mm-hmm. he knew that governing was hard work. Like it wasn't easy creating a central bank. And he wanted the best and the brightest. He thought governor- governing necessarily were elites, that-,
1: mm-hmm.
0: that regular people couldn't govern.
1: Yeah. And I want to go, I, I, I want to get into how this plays out now or how this has played out through history. But there's one group I want to talk about because I talked about three forces. We talked about two. The third is the counter-enlightenment.
0: Yes. You're yeah, right. can you explain and, and that one? Sure, sure, because you're absolutely right. The the entire book talks about how these three forces interact in different ways to shape every era of our history up until today. So what is the counter-enlightenment? Well, it, after our founding in the late part of the century, there was a new movement that became very uh, very uh, widespread in America, which was what, what's referred to today as the Second Great Awakening. And it's the second because there was a religious wave earlier in the century before we were a country. But the second Great Awakening was a movement that was faith-based. It was the great expansion of Methodists and Baptists and other Protestant churches across America that caught like a like a wildfire. These preachers were talking about the importance of faith. But so the reason why it's called counter-enlightenment, which is because fundamentally. The argument that was predominant during these movements were that they rejected basically the the enlightenment, that that reason and observation sufficed to make a great society. They believed society needed to be based on on faith and on religion. So it it was very counter-enlightenment. Now, I say that with some trepidation because the counter-enlightenment in the form of the Second Great Awakening brought some wonderful things to America. I mean, it was during the Second Great Awakening, for example, that for the first time women developed a voice in American civic life. You know, men were working, and it was it was women that would go to these these rallies, these meetings, and listen to preachers and become vocal. And so women developed a voice around two big issues that were, were very consequential. The thing they were very passionate about was temperance because their husbands were getting drunk and beating them up all the time. Mm-hmm. So it was the women's movement that drove temperance, which, which was a big movement, you know, alcohol ban in essence. Yeah. But, the, but the more important one probably was that it was the women who were getting involved that became and led much of the abolitionist movement because they recognized that slavery was not consistent with faith, not with the Enlightenment. So, so so, the point being is that the counter-Enlightenment had some huge positive effects on society. But to your point, this notion of, of denying Enlightenment thinking, this counter-Enlightenment force, also had quite detrimental, destructive elements across our history. And so at the end of the day, what the book does is three things. It lays out this framework that we've just been talking about, It then talks about five episodes of our history where these three forces were at work. And then it goes into a a roadmap or a manifesto for what we need to do now to move back towards progress. So in in essence, it's broad sweeping. I'm not, it's it's not only history, but my my argument is that we can't get out of the morass we're in today unless we understand history and know how these forces have worked. What What I say often is that History can act as a salve for our wounds, if only we would apply it.
1: And I I think the one thing thing I'd like to highlight, because earlier on in the conversation, I talked a little bit about the idea of the the church being a stabilizing force. And I, I remember reading that passage from your book and thinking to myself that, you know, the church was the stabilizing force between the government and the people, the monarch. Well, now the government is the people. And so, in a lot of ways, I saw this counter enlightenment as as a reawakening of that stabilizing force to run counter to the government in yes. a way, which was mm-hmm. which was interesting. Very interesting. Um, you'd mentioned a couple of a couple of times in American history where these forces have come to a head. Name one or two of the bigger ones for us.
0: Well, one one of the ones that's extremely important, I think, it ended up becoming the period of time after the Civil War, which we, is now known as Reconstruction, when it advanced based on uh, uh, very much in, both enlightenment and counter-enlightenment forces and then collapsed ultimately. So that's discussed in detail. Another one that's probably equally interesting is the, the move from the period of time in, in Johnson's presidency, which we refer to as the Great Society, when the, the, the notion of the fact that the market, the capitalist market alone, was not providing for the... The, the pursuit of life, liberty, and happiness for Mar- many Americans, and systematic programs were tr- were implemented to try to address that. And then this this counter enlightenment move back that was led originally by Billy Graham towards what became the Moral Majority, which you know was a reactionary against that. And of course, you know, I argue in the book that the, the pendulum swing between Obama as the first African American president, hmm. representing a form of radical enlightenment thinking, and Trump. Was another one of these transitions, if you will. Now, I think what what I, the way I describe it in the book is that Trumpism, is, in a way, and the populism and tribalism that's part of that movement, is very much counter enlightenment. So it's mm-hmm. a combination of it's really more, much more of a counter enlightenment movement than a, a a moderate radical movement. The moderate movement would be the Mitch McConnell's of the world, kind of the elite establishment.
1: Well, this is what I was. This is what I'm. I'm, I'm wondering is is in a lot of ways, is it a case where the pendulum is constantly swinging between radical and, and counter and the moderates are kind of in the middle just maybe holding it together when the chips are down? Is that, right. is that a fair assessment?
0: Well, so, so, I mean, I guess I'll, I'll just summarize it by saying this. The book starts out by saying there's, a, there's this schism that starts between the radicals and the moderates and reconciling that becomes the, the major challenge of the revolutionary era. But it turns out that both the radicals and the moderates have a tremendous contribution to make. And the real challenge today is between having a mix of reason and enlightenment lead the conversation as opposed to counter enlightenment forces like uh, tribalism and fear and all the Mm -hmm. things that are running us today. So there is a bit of a head fake, meaning that the dynamic between radical and moderate, which starts out as the conflict, ends up morphing into one where the conflict is really between what I would call an enlightenment framework, what I described earlier in our talk as being the, the secret sauce, the foundation for modern society, and a rejection of that. Because today, the forces that are at work, I think, are very much rejecting the enlightenment framework, look at, look at what's happened with COVID-19. And, you know, it, there's an, a, a tendency to reject reality, to just to, yeah. to, to put science aside. So the, that, that to me is the real danger, this counter enlightenment force. And my critique of counter enlightenment forces has nothing to do with a criticism of faith. I think religion and faith is an important part of people's lives. The issue is that and people confuse this all the time. They say to me, are you anti-faith? No, the, the question, as the radicals had it right, is keeping faith separate from power in politics. When yeah. those combine, when, when, when the, the political structure is driven by a faith-based movement or, or one single church or ideology, that's when I think government has become corrupt.
1: The, the one follow-up question I have, actually, before I get to my next point is, um, are there conditions where— one of these forces prevails or conditions that promote conflict between these forces.
0: Let's talk about in today's terms, in today's vernacular, what would be the conflict between the radicals and the moderates for a second. It comes down to the struggle that we have between the elite establishment and the people. So Mm -hmm. in other words, all, all are created equal, but as the radicals described, not all end up being equal in terms of what they achieve. So you like if you were getting surgery on your brain you wouldn't just want anyone doing it you would want a brain surgeon with expertise the point <laughs> is that the moderate model of using expertise and relying on elites let's call them to conduct important roles in society is extremely beneficial it's 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 it's, it's the the hamilton model of insisting on expertise is is very, very important. And that is a moderate construct. The elites, the educated people who know how to do certain skills representing and governing and and leading society. Now, there's a huge anti-establishment movement right now, which is in the form of populism, which Mm -hmm. rejects the elite establishment. So in many ways, that is a manifestation of a radical enlightenment view this notion that you know even though people have certain skills and expertise they have no more right in governing or in setting up in setting policy and agenda now i argue in the book in detail that there actually is a nuance that that makes this not ex- exactly true but for for the purposes of our talk here so today this anti-establishment which by the way is both on the left and the right so the, the extreme left who is very distrustful of the institutions and American credibility in these institutions and the right, who has has disdain for the whole establishment. Those are both against the moderate enlightenment. Oh,
1: yeah. I mean, people cringe when I say this. And there's one person listening to this right now who is especially going to cringe when I say this. But when I put Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump into the same camp, that really rub some people the wrong way because I do think to your point this counter enlightenment, this populism is independent of party. Yes. It is it's it's more a reflection or more of an expression of the sentiment that the elites have failed us, that the moderates have failed us in a way. Yes. And even you can see that in the in the form of sniping, whether it's against Mitch McConnell, whether it's against Joe Manchin, simply for just taking a stance. You know, I asked you to justify a hunch and I'm gonna keep I'm gonna poke at it a little more because you know one of the one of the big things I've one of, the, one of the things that I've noticed is the amount of social change that took place after the invention of the printing press. You know, yes. where where once philosophy and acquired knowledge was really restricted to monasteries and these specific institutions, it began to pr- proliferate. And you see, you know, obviously you see the Enlightenment. You see the scientific revolutions. You see the Protestant Reformation's another big one. You know, you see a lot of these going on. And 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 part of the reason your book got me thinking in terms of that is because you know when we look now at the post truth era it's it's almost as if the enlightenment was spawned by unprecedented access of information and now is on the verge of being destroyed by another revolution in information that makes it even more accessible yeah but i want to throw that idea out there because i
0: do feel like that's one of the challenges we're facing now I agree with one premise that you're implying, which is that new modes of communication have a huge effect on access to information and are enablers for society. So in the 18th century, even before the, the printing press was a huge revolution for many reasons. And, you know, one of the greatest radical enlighteners, Benjamin Franklin, that's what he did. He used the press and newspapers and print to try to help educate the entire populace. That was mm-hmm. one of his missions. Yeah. So, but but I also wanna point out that those media without rules and norms end up becoming very destructive. So in, in, this, in the period of time we're talking about, there was not a, an established journalistic profession. And so everybody printed pamphlets and ideas and threw them out there. It was like kind of chaos. It's a little bit like what we have today with the internet. Yeah. Yeah. It was similar. So what happened was recognizing that that wasn't productive in terms of accurate information being disseminated as a public good. Over the course of 200 years, the profession of journalism grew up. And so by the the 20th, 20th century, we have institutions that pride themselves on making sure their reporting is accurate and End up becoming real disseminators of, of accurate information to, to the degree possible. Everything is always, you know, a postmodernist would say everything's always biased. But yeah. but 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 getting it right becomes the goal of journalism. Now, what I would argue is we're in this stage, sort of with digital media, analogous to like after the printing press, but before we have norms. Yes. So 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 we have no regulation. Anyone can throw whatever they want out there. But the reputation of prestigious journalistic institutions which used to be the news networks and and print and are now I argue in the book are gone that our media model has ever since Reagan when we got rid of the fairness doctrine we've allowed what set up those foundational norms to disappear mm-hmm. and, but in inter, in the internet they never existed at all <laughs> mm-hmm. and the great question for those who are worried about the power of digital media is are the companies that dominate, and there's only a handful of them, like Google, Facebook, etc., are they going to determine norms around the the importance of accuracy, or are they going to get regulated into it? That's Mm -hmm. the debate that's happening now, right? So I think one way or another, correct information is a public good. You and I, Dan, don't know whether drugs are safe or not. We rely on experts on an FDA to do the work and give us the information. Much of what I call what Jonathan Roach writes about is the constitution of knowledge. It's not based on stuff that we individually observe. It's based Mm -hmm. on stuff that people tell us who've done the work. So (laughs) the constitution of knowledge that we rely on and that is part of the prosperity I referred to before, that is based on institutions and a process of decentralized problem solving that centers around specialization and peer review transparency, mm-hmm. to see what is true until it's proven not true. And yeah. that is the, that form of building knowledge, which is largely what the role of institutions are. So institutions correct for that by building this constitution of knowledge.
1: Well. And this kind of brings us full circle here, because if we talk about the printing press as one of the catalysts for the Enlightenment, one of the catalysts for the upending of that social order that consisted of church, monarch, and people, you know, we look now and we see our institutions are challenged by this overabundance of information. And again, in my mind, you know, as much as people want to figure out how to regulate social media, you can't really put the genie back in the bottle or the toothpaste back in the tube, whatever you want to say. And just like back during the enlightenment, there was a restructuring. There is a need for a restructuring now. And that kind of gets us to the end of your book, which is you have some reforms you recommend.
0: One are a set of structural changes that I argue need to take place for us to revitalize our democracy. And the other are a set of mindset changes. And both are important. The mindset changes revolve around rejecting the the entire current form of debate that we're having which in my view is centered around triggers for what drive primitive human emotions like fear and like like it's it's as if we're treating the public policy arena as if you know we all know when we're at a sports event that endorphin rush when we cheer for our team mm-hmm. and cheer against the the opposing team that's based on primitive amygdala driven emotions that come from you know millions of years ago when it was served us well to have those reactions in, in tribes and when we were hunter gatherers. So those are those are vestiges of, of, of an earlier human and they're important. They give us real pleasure. I'm not attacking them. My point is only that the, that way of interacting and thinking is great for the sports arena. It's not very good for solving public policy problems, but yeah. yet, We're using that framework as if, you know, it's who can say the thing that's the nastiest on Twitter. So the the mindset changes about how we reject that and completely reject ad hominem attacks. And as an example, one of the groups I'm working with is called Braver Angels. I don't know if you know who they are, but they're trying to get people of what they call reds and blues of different perspectives together to have a productive conversation. Now, the other side is structural. So, you know, the the framers meant for our constitution to change every generation. (laughs) They knew that they would never figure out a blueprint that's gonna work forever. (laughs) And in fact, you know, we talked before about the second great awakening. One of the aspects of the religious movement that swept the country at the end of our first century, was a revisionism about what the revolution was all about. There's a famous painting that depicts God handing the constitution down to George Washington in the form of two tablets. So as if it's Moses getting the tablets of the 10 commandments from God, that's the analogy. Now think about that for a second. The whole premise that our founders and framers were so adamant about was a government of the people, bottom up not a government top-down being handed down. So the whole, the whole f- reason for governing was completely in that revisionist view that it was divine was completely misinterpreting the founder's intention. It wasn't yes. divine, it was even think about the symbolism. In the painting, the Constitution are tablets set in stone. The Constitution wasn't supposed to be set in stone. It was supposed to change. That's why they made it modifiable. So so my point being this revisionist view, which became dominant, made us seem like we had some form of top-down government that was fixed, which wasn't the intent. And so I'm bringing this up because once again, it shows that we're really in conflict about how faith and rigidity and structure is the enemy of, of progress. Now, I mention and advocate in the book for certain structural changes. And there are ones that are obvious. I mean, campaign finance reform is an obvious one. That, that mm-hmm. It's clear that because we deem political speech to be the most sacred form of free speech, we yeah. can't regulate it. So a candidate can say whatever they want, which is completely untrue and nobody can touch it because political speech is not regulated. Another structural change would be ranked choice voting which I'm very much for, and there's a real rationale of why it's such a better model for where we are as a society. I, I can't go into it right now, but Rank the Vote is an organization that we're both familiar with. Oh, um,
1: yeah.
0: And so, so at the end of the day, the amount of effort and time spent to get reelected, which has become the primary force in our political industry, has drowned out the need for problem solving. What I'm doing now is I'm using the book, which I'm hopeful your listeners will, will read, as a platform also for how to get involved in some of this stuff. And mm-hmm. and the reason why, Dan, is because the, the, the exhausted majority, which many of my peers, they're in the they're you know, they're not playing a role today. They're quiet because they, they're apathetic. And so yeah. there are ways to get involved, even a little bit in supporting organizations like Rank the Vote. Or like braver angels, or there's many other ones. There's a swell of people who realize that if we stay on our current path, we're not we're not solving problems and moving ahead.
1: I hope you enjoyed this episode, and if you did, please consider leaving it a review and letting everyone know how great you thought it was. Now, that book is American Schism. It can be purchased on Amazon, wherever books are sold, and I'll also have a link in the show notes, so check it out. It's a very interesting read. Now, big takeaway from this conversation, and this is something that I've been thinking about for some time, is that American democracy didn't necessarily eliminate a ruling class or eliminate an elite strata of society calling the shots. It merely restricted the extent of their power, provided for more input from the governed, and made being in the ruling class a little more meritocratic and a little less an accident of birth. Now, while much of the debate we have over policy is about how much power we're willing to give the government, there's an equally relevant and quieter debate going on about how much freedom people can handle. And we saw some of this in the episodes we did on tech censorship back in August with Matthew Feeney and Ben Studebaker. If you haven't listened to them, check those out. Now, if Radwell's book is any indication, I don't anticipate this debate ending anytime soon. Now, tune in next week when my man Ben Studebaker will give his always fascinating take on the events unfolding in Ukraine. And as always, music courtesy of QuellerTac, YDHTY's editorial advisor and producer is the admirable Admiral Adam Yaffe. YDHTY is produced in loving memory of the big Gino Jason Putney. Until the next, this is Dan Sally. Ooh. Bye-bye.